everyone. It has been two weeks and I'm a bit more refreshed. Thank you so much for letting me take that break. Today we have one of my most favorite people in the world, my husband. He was a police officer for 10 years. He had served in the middle of Atlanta and he also served in a suburb of Atlanta. So he has had different populations working with and he has had to take the child welfare calls. When we call 911 and a child is in danger, he has been the one to kind of show up to those calls and figure out what needs to be done and if a child needs to be removed. And that got me wondering, what is it like for police in these situations? And when somebody calls, how are the police involved? And do people normally call the police or do they call Department of Children and Families? And what does the process look for them? And all of that. And how do they make their decisions? So I wanted to ask him some of these questions so we could better understand what the police's role was in child welfare so that we have a better understanding of the whole system. So he has some great perspective to bring to this conversation. Again, another layer of complexity here, but he also has some great advice for what we can do to end the foster care crisis. So let's do this. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. So I'm so excited to do this interview because crazy enough, even though this is my husband, it's hard to find time when we don't have, one of us doesn't have the baby. So we finally found a moment where we can do this interview. And my husband was a police officer for a while in Atlanta. And I kind of realized that um, even though I was a social worker, I didn't really realize the whole process that took place with child welfare calls and police officers. And I had a lot of questions for him. So I think that it would be good for, you know, our listeners too, because a lot of people talk about making uh, child reports or reports of child abuse, and they might not know the process. So I think that you can kind of share your perspective on that and share kind of what it's like to be an officer on those calls. And then what's the process of follow up and all that good stuff. So Thank you, Travis, for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. So, okay. So the first question I want to ask you is, what is the process? A lot of people say, like, I'm going to call the, you know, authorities on someone because they're afraid that a child is in danger. And I think, I don't know if the, you know, common public knows to call Department of Children and Families. So... In your experience, do people typically call the police or do you get calls? Uh, it, it depends on if somebody, it's, if somebody's kind of been through the system before and understands how it works. And unfortunately, you either run into times where people are trying to abuse that system and, uh, and, and, and try to make somebody's life uncomfortable. Uh, they'll understand the ins and outs almost as well as the police officer will. But the, the general public, um, I would say, would call 911 if they thought that a child was, uh, was in danger or needed to be checked on. Um, or call the the, the, the uh, non-emergency uh, line, but for the for the most part, it's 911 calls. But there are some people that are familiar with the with using uh, where I was at in Georgia, uh, DFAC, 
um, and just doing a referral that way. And that system is actually the same system that police officers use. You just hit uh, one opposed to two whenever you're making your defects referral. And uh, it sends you out to a call center in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and they ask you a list of questions that within a couple of days, uh, a defects investigator will come out and check on that child and do a, a full-on report. Okay, so that makes sense if like you're in an apartment complex and for a while you've thought this family was a little sketchy and you just wanted to make sure the kids were you know, checked on and that they were okay. But I've heard of a lot of reports of people like they're in the middle of a Walmart and they're appalled by what they saw and they want to make a call. That would probably be like direct to police, right? Yeah, it would need to be, it would be, need to be now on one at that point because I mean, obviously the, the most important thing is like freezing the scene and stopping it. Like if there's a, a child that's going to be in danger, you don't want them to leave off with the child. Uh, at the end of the day, if you just got faces on a Walmart um, camera, um, that's going to be pretty difficult to put those breadcrumbs together to catch up with that child to check on their welfare. So yeah, I would always suggest for someone to call uh, 911 if they ever um, needed police in any circumstance. Uh, I mean, no police officer, no police department is going to frown upon you using 911. Uh, so if there's any question whatsoever, don't waste time and look up the uh, the the uh, non-emergency line. Just call 911, uh, and if it's not an emergency, that's a good thing. Um, but they have the capability to deal with the influx of calls that come in. So uh, I would suggest to anyone that if they ever see anything uh, that they feel like they could use police assistance for that they need to dial 911 immediately. Okay, so how does that all work? They Somebody says there's a child that has no shoes on and they're out in the cold and you're an officer and you're out on patrol and you get that call. So you head over there and do you have like a specific criteria are you already calling Department of Children and Families or are you gonna are you gonna wait till you see? And then do you have like a specific criteria for what's okay or what's not? Like were you given training on Yeah, so I like th that's the funny thing about being a police officer is uh I did go to six months uh academy in Atlanta, Atlanta Police Department. Uh did six six months in their academy. Um and I dealt with pretty much all the professionals and experts uh in that field. Um, but after I left the academy, you know six months of uh, daily, eight hours a day, uh, grueling hours in the classroom, on the range, in the car, so on and so forth. Um, I pretty much summed everything down in the academy to can you articulate what you're doing? Um, so they give you parameters and a box to work within, uh, but it's the police officer's job to be able to articulate why they're doing what they're doing. And if they can't articulate it, to make sure that they uh, work up the hire and hire can work up the uh, experts to try to solve that situation. But yeah, if you can't articulate what you're doing, uh, so getting back to the question, uh, is basically what does it look like? Right? So if I got that, that call, you use the example of uh, a child with no shoes on. Um, that doesn't sound in itself like an emergency right off the rip, but, but it would be treated like an emergency. You would try to get over there as quickly as possible, uh, freeze that scene in place, uh, so that you could, uh, do a proper investigation. So you ask if uh, we would involve defects um, off the rip if you got that 911 uh, phone call. Um, that wouldn't be the case. It would be something where you went and investigated because I would say nine out of 10 911 calls that you get um, usually aren't what people think they are. Um, there's usually a, you know, uh, there's usually a circumstance or, or an explanation as to say uh, to why the child would not have shoes on, right? So you talk to the parent and they're like, oh my goodness, like he totally just had a blowout with his flip flop. And I'm just trying to get him in the car. I've got another pair of shoes in the car. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. Everything's checking out here. Um, there was no um, 
need for me to, to, to bother them any further. Um, but if you went in that situation, you went and checked and, uh, the response from the adult that had the child in care was, was, uh, you know, of a different tone where it was like, uh, yeah, it's my kid and that little dirty rascal doesn't deserve a pair of shoes. At that point, you're going to, uh, uh, you're, you're going to involve defects on the scene and you're going to, you're going to continue to investigate until you feel like you've left the child, uh, in a situation where they're going to be safe until defects can get to them. Um, so I, you know, I honestly, like, can I articulate what I'm doing? I would always ask, ask the question, is the child going to be safe if I leave them in the state that they're in right now? And if the answer is yes to that, uh, then they pretty much stay where they're at until defects can catch up with them. If the answer is no to that, uh, then that child's going to be coming home or, or not coming home with me, but they're going to be uh, leaving that scene with me and going somewhere else for the night, which is uh, something that, that nobody ever, ever, ever wants to do. Um, but I can remember a day in the academy when it really sunk into me. Uh, there was a situation in Atlanta where a child had um, had been under the, the radar defects, and I'm not bagging on defects whatsoever. They've got a very difficult job to do. Um, but this was a defects investigator as well. So they, I really appreciated the fact that she showed, um, the darker side of her job and the, the, the failings that, uh, that the department had had, which, you know, every big department is going to have those. Uh, it's just, unfortunately, whenever the consequences, the child, um, passing, that's, uh, is totally unacceptable. So this child, uh, had, had been in the, you know, uh, had been under the, the radar of defects for, for upwards of, of a year, um, several home visits. Um, and they all checked out and said there was nothing to report at the time. And when the 911 call came in that the child had, uh, had passed away, um, it was like a nine year old child that, that didn't weigh 40 pounds and literally had been beaten down to, uh, uh, like the white meat on his back. Um, he had scars where it looked like somebody had written, you know, had written tic-tac-toe all over his back. Um, so he had not fed and had basically not been fed and, and basically just from malnutrition and, and pure abuse had, had expired um, or passed away. And, uh, you know, at that moment, you just make the decision like, uh, I'll, I will never, ever put myself in that situation where I was the person that made that decision and left that child in that situation uh, when it could have uh, been prevented. Um, so to get back and answer the question, that was a, a, a long bit, but it all boils down to, can you articulate what you're doing? Uh, and yes or no, is this child going to be safe if I leave them where they're at right now before an investigator from DFACS or whichever agencies can catch up to them and investigate the situation? So for you, and so they have what, 24 hours, 48 hours? Uh, as far as uh, you're talking about with a DFACS investigator? The Department can, of Children and Families to come out after you make a report. Um, they're pretty quick, and I don't, I don't want to misspeak and tell you exactly, but but yeah, I mean, you know, I always looked at it. Could the, could the child stay in the condition that they're in right now for a couple of days? And if the answer is yes to that, uh, then you leave the child where they're at. Uh, if, if you're like, I'm not sure, then at that point you start making phone calls and you're looking for, you know, uh, big mama, sister, uncle, cousin, somebody that can keep that child safe, right, for, for a couple of days until defects and catch up to them. But uh, the goal is never to remove a child um, from their family. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can't answer that question, will that child be safe? Then they're going to they're gonna be removed, unfortunately. And that's a tough part of, uh, of that job for sure. Um, but again, um, I always went back to seeing those pictures of that child's back uh, with literal scars. It looked like somebody played tic-tac-toe on his back. 
um, and malnourished down to uh, death. Um, and I was like, I'll make sure that never happens if I, if I can prevent it. So, so it sounds like there could be gray area there because yeah, there's you know, always gray area in, uh, in police work. And I, you know, I, I, there's, there's gray areas in all lines of work, but when you're dealing with, uh, people, there's going to be huge gray areas, you know, you're making decisions that are affecting people's lives. And a lot of people will be like, they need to do this and they need to do that. And a while ago, you know, I alluded to the fact that, uh, you know, failure, the defects have made, but they've got a very difficult job. Police have a very difficult job. And at the end of the day, you know, these children are not better off just because they've been removed from their family. Uh, you're introducing a new normal to them. Um, and, you know, I, I've looked at a kid that's that's filled up his belongings in a trash bag and sat in a police station with a bunch of cops at two o'clock in the morning. And, and he asked me where he's going. And I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I've got to figure out. I've got to find out where you're going for the night. I just couldn't leave you. Uh, and they want to go back to their their mom or dad or respective uh, custodian. But, uh, you know, you have to make that decision for their safety. Um, but it's not an easy decision to make in, in gray area. Um, would be a great way to explain it and you wind up in situations where the training is can you articulate it so articulation through gray areas um that boils down to the individual a lot of the time um and sometimes individuals don't make the right call sometimes individuals do make the right call but yeah you're that's what i'm saying the situation could be completely different depending on which cop shows up which defects investigator shows up uh and who the judge is going to see the case the next morning uh you're dealing with you know basically three branches of government right there and three different individuals that could interpret it several different ways. So the path is never clear. Um, and that leads to a lot of frustration for a lot of people because um, you want to give people warm and fuzzy. This is the way it's going to go. But at the end of the day, you, you don't know how it's going to go until it goes. So is there ever a situation where a, a department of children and families worker comes on scene at the time you're there? Like, do they have the capacity to, to show up? Or uh, usually whenever, uh, usually I've, I've never dealt with defects on, on scene. And we're, we're saying defects, the Department of the uh, Family Children's Services uh, in Georgia. It could be called different in different states. But yet, usually if you're dealing with, uh, with defects, um, they have called for police assistance. So they might be doing one of their investigations and they go to knock on the door and there's an 80 pound pit bull and a dude passed out with a needle in his arm on the front porch. And they're, you know, this is a girl that just graduated college and she's like, I do not want to go in this house alone. So that, that's usually the dealings that you deal with defects on scene okay. uh, where they're doing their referrals, their investigations or checkups. Um, and they're in a situation where they're just totally sketched out and they're like, man, we need somebody here to kind of make sure the scene is safe so we can do our job. Uh, but no, any, anytime I ever did like emergency welfare of a child, um, defects was not involved until hours after. Um, and I guess I could, uh, touch on that for, for a quick second. Um, I was very, very fortunate that, uh, I had good contacts throughout my career. Um, but if you remove a child, um, the wait time before you get face-to-face uh, -face with, uh, with, with, with an investigator um, from defects could be upwards of eight, nine hours because they're, they're busy as well. Um, uh, thankfully, I had direct contacts and you know, they trusted me that I wasn't going to waste their time um, because they're stretched in. I mean, they've got, you know, cases all over the place. So um, 
it could be it could be upward of hours before you see somebody, uh, and 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 uh, that's just the the nature of the beast. They're dealing with tons and tons of cases, so um, they would be pulled all over the place. So sometimes it takes uh, quite a bit of time to sit in a precinct with a child. You know, uh, the you know the next shift is bought the kid in McDonald's because they're like, oh wow, there's a kid in the precinct. That's sad. Let me make sure we can do something to try to make them uh, give them a little bit of normalcy. And it's like, hey, there's different shifts coming on bottom. Uh, fast food or whatnot and the other and then uh, the other part of that is uh, after everything's been cleared out for that child to become aware of the state while they're investigating it um, they're picked up and taken into custody but that cop's going to be responsible for um, standing in front of the judge the next morning um, you know when you're dealing with uh, adults um, they'll wait you know sometimes 24 to 72 hours before you have first appearance but when you're dealing with juveniles um, whether it's criminal or uh, welfare, um, you, you know, if you make the case at 11 o'clock at night on a juvenile as criminal or uh, welfare, it's going to the same courtroom uh, that next morning uh, at 8 o'clock. So um, I guess that's another thing you kind of look on. Like cops do not, you know, cops do not look forward to dealing with these cases because um one, they're hard to see and they're, they're hard to deal with, but it, it's one of those things where um, they make it difficult for a cop to even do what they're supposed to do. Um, and I say they, uh, the, the, the process has the child's welfare in mind, and I'm glad that that's the case. Uh, but I just wanted to bring it up that, that a cop that could, could come into contact with a kid at eight o'clock at night uh, that is in a bad situation, um, he asked himself that question or she asked her, herself that question, will this child be alive by the time defects catches up to him? The answer is no. They removed the child from that scene. They're sitting at the precinct. They've made phone calls. They've worked up through uh, chain of command. They've called the courts uh, to get permission to keep the child in custody, the state's custody until they can investigate it. Um, it could be three, four o'clock in the morning before they wind up with uh, with a, a point of contact with defects that could take that child to a foster home for the night. Um, and then they're required to do about four or five hours worth of paperwork. Um, that is, I mean, detailed, 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 um, to the point where they want to know the child's father, the child's mother, the child's grandfather, uh, grandmother, uh, where they work, where they're from, their phone numbers. Like it's one of those deals where, I mean, you're dealing with a four or five hour report. Uh, and at this point, you know, it's the next day your shift is over and you get in your personal vehicle and you drive over to juvenile court and you explain everything that's happening at this point. Like you haven't slept. Um, you're thinking in circles. Um, and it might be noon before the case is heard. Um, so, um, a lot of people ask, you know, um, you know, why are these things not more streamlined? Why is it not easier to deal with? And the, the fact of the matter is the situation uh, it's filled with those gray areas that you just talked about. They want to make sure that the process uh, is, is, is as streamlined as possible and as thorough as possible. So uh, a lot of times when you're, you're, you're talking about being thorough, um, that, you know, it feels like death in a court to you essentially where you're just sitting around waiting to figure out what's going to happen uh, because the enforcement side of the government has made their decision. And now it's time for the interpretation side with the judiciary to make their decision on what needs to happen. So, uh, I would kind of like um, say it's a lot like probable cause, right? That doesn't mean you're you're guilty. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, uh, you're guilty at the time. But then there's a judge that's going to see you, where they're going to interpret it, or they're going to interpret the facts and take the totality of the circumstances 
and they're going to interpret whether or not uh, the, what the police officer on the enforcement side thought he saw to what they see as far as uh, applying it to uh, uh, the welfare of the child and uh, and the juvenile justice system and, and, and how they take care of uh, the welfare of the child. So they'll be the expert on that matter. Um, I would kind of like uh, put it on the terms of like probable cause, the way it's like, you know, you, you thought somebody had committed a crime, it was enough to arrest them. A judge is gonna interpret that. A ton of cases that go to a courtroom are, are thrown out by a judge or dismissed or there's not enough um, evidence to convict. So uh, same kind of situation where you run through all that stuff and then maybe the next day the uh, judge interprets it dif differently than you did. And they're like, hey, they can go back to live with him or her. Uh, and I kind of got off on a tangent and got lost, so you can direct me back in. No, that's cool. So it's not cool, but that was very good information. Um, so is the cop done then A after that he that first hearing? Would you ever be called back to court, or in do you at all get to keep up with any of the cases? Uh, that's a that's a great question, and and and. Juvenile court is one of those deals where it's never done. And it's not one of those things where it's like when you're dealing with adults, it's like, uh, I would tell somebody like, you know, I'd, I'd worked on gangs and I'd worked on uh, narcotics units uh, in Atlanta. Um, and you could make a, a felony case with tons of drugs and guns and cash money that was illegal. Uh, you could do that report in a couple hours, have everything into evidence and that individual in jail within a couple hours, right? Uh, and then you might not hear back from that case for, for weeks, months, sometimes it can be years. Um, but that's not the case with juveniles, right? So with juveniles, um, they, 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 it's not like a deal where you're dealing with, a, uh, okay, we've got a docket full of cases and there's really no sense of urgency to get around to it. Uh, there's a huge sense of urgency to make sure that a child's safe before you turn them loose. It's not like an adult uh, that's sick and uh, is addicted to drugs and in and out of jail. Them walking the streets is, is not the end of the day. Um, they are adults that can take care of themselves. Um, you, you could say, hey, you got to come back to court on this date, that date, or you can sit in jail until you have your court date. You don't have that luxury with a child. Like, so things have to be decided uh, in a timely fashion. And with, with that being said, uh, a lot of the times these things are picked up. Uh, the interpretation from the judiciary is not, uh, is not settled on that day. So they'll be like, Hey, we're going to pick it back up tomorrow at eight o'clock. We're going to pick it back up the next day at eight o'clock. Uh, it's not one of those deals where it's like, Hey, you made a case. Uh, you're going to be in the court, uh, three months from now and you'll come in, you'll, uh, indict the case in the grand jury and then you'll be done with it for another three months and then you'll be done with it for another three months so on and so forth until uh, they work out a plea deal with the prosecutor or um, you run through a trial which very few cases go to trial uh, these days uh, not to get off on that but um, that juvenile case that you're talking about whether it be criminal or welfare um, the police officer is going to be going to court a lot and sitting and waiting um, and we may need you today, we may need you today, we may need you today, and may need you today on the criminal side for an adult. Might be like, hey, the prosecutor or the, uh, the ADA assistant district attorney, he's got my phone number, um, I'll pick it up, I promise, if you call me, I'll head on down there. Uh, that's not the case in juvenile courtroom. If uh, you're asked to be in juvenile courtroom, uh, you're actually not asked, you're told. 
you'll be in juvenile courtroom and you'll be there until they're ready to, to release you. And that could be all day long. Um, so um, as far as from the police side, you're asking my point of view, juvenile court, um, like police officers, like there's not a case that is more difficult to uh, deal with than, than anything that has to deal with juveniles. Um, it's a lot, a lot of court, a lot, a lot of paperwork and it should be. Um, but yeah, it's, it was something that kind of surprised me as far as like, you know, you could make, uh, a, a murder case and it would be much easier to deal with, um, than a child that stole, you know, a pair of shoes at Foot Locker. Um, that case would be a hundred times more detailed than, uh, than a murder case. Okay. So have there been any cases like that you wanted to follow up with like after you you know secured a child or you went through the initial part that you wondered how they ended up and you were able to or not able to yeah i yeah so that's a a, a difficult one to, to, to answer and right now like um i did 10 years between uh the city of atlanta and Ackworth. Um, and I can count on my hands how many children I had to actually remove from, from the home. Um, and yeah, I get like out of all the things that I dealt with, like I've seen people shot and dying. I've seen, uh, car wrecks where people were dying. I've seen, you know, a, a lot of very negative things. Um, but th that, those kids that are, you know, I can count on my hands that I had to remove from a home. Um, I think about them often, but to be honest with you, um, I have no idea what they're doing or where they're at or who they're with. Uh, I just know that I did what I was supposed to do um, and that I, I hope and pray that they're in a situation that was better than when I dealt with them. Um, and that is the case. It may be better. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, this is not um, a, a Disney movie where um, everybody goes home to a, a nice, warm and uh, fuzzy family and everything's perfect. Uh, I mean, the, the new normal might be like, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm fed, right? Or right. the new normal might be like, I'm not uh, being abused by my stepdad anymore. Or the new normal might be, I really miss my mom. Uh, that's a drug addict that was shooting up meth over me in the bathroom. Um, it, it might make me and you feel better, but uh, that, that, you know, a lot of these stories don't have happy endings, uh, unfortunately. And if they are happy, it doesn't mean it's happy for the child. Um, so to answer your question, no, I have no idea what they're doing. Uh, do I hope and pray that they're doing well? Yes. Um, would I bet my bottom dollar on it that, uh, every single one of them are in a perfect situation right now? Uh, in fact, I'd probably gamble on the office side of the house and say they've dealt with some trauma that is going to follow them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So, so you said you can count the number of kids you removed on your hand. So probably less than 10 and that's in 10 years. So that kind of give me, gives me some perspective because I would think police are removing kids all the time. But so that must mean in all the other cases, you were either able to find somebody else to care for them or did you take the perpetrator out of the house? Like if it was a sexual abuse claim or it was an abusive, I don't know, stepdad, like you went and took the adult that was causing the trauma out and so they were able to stay in the home yeah so that scenario has got to be solved and at the end of the day I go back to that question would that child be safe as a result um I, i've got a case that can come to mind where where a um a, a young girl is about 16 years old a juvenile 
Um, her mom had left off to work. Uh, mom's boyfriend had stayed up all night long drinking. And he decided that he was going to sexually abuse her after mom left off to work. In that situation, he was arrested um, and uh, convicted. Uh, so the problem was solved. And, and mom realized that she had made a mistake leaving uh, him in the house uh, with, with her children. Um, so that situation was, was solved with an arrest. Um, but there are, there are situations where that's not the case. Um, you know, the majority of them do wind up. Somebody's got a grandma or a, uh, they've got a, a, you know, the, the mom's got a sibling or, um, somebody that can come that is blood and has their stuff together that can take care of the kid. But I can remember some situations where it was like, uh, yeah, I had the, the mom under arrest. Uh, the child was in the back of the car with, uh, in a car seat that looks like they hadn't been removed from it in days. Uh, mom shot out on meth, running in the bathroom, hiding syringes behind, um, a diaper change station in the bathroom. Um, and now I've got a, a, a lady that's addicted to meth and a child in the back of the car that, um, is not having their basic needs met. Uh, so at that point, you know, the whole process starts of trying to get that child safe for the night. I mean, first things first, um, you got to call somebody over the precinct that can load up a car with a baby seat. Cause I'm not going to drive, uh, the, the accused car back to the precinct or take their baby seat for that matter um so that process starts and it's a long and tedious process but yeah i mean that that situation that i'm telling you about right there she was the best situation for that child unfortunately um i called dad uh dad showed up and immediately i could tell he was under the influence of drugs so i called grandma grandma showed up i could tell she was under the influence of drugs uh and i was out of choices at that point uh, there was nobody else to call. Um, now, is that just you? Is that just you knowing that they were? Or do you actually go through like drug testing somebody before they take a yeah, child? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I had worked on the streets for 10 years and, and uh, I, I would say that any police officer um, that's been on the street for a couple of years is going to be pretty good at, at telling who and who is not under the influence of narcotics because it's our biggest problem in America. I mean, it, it boils down to, um, all the pain and trauma that's in the world is usually self-medicated with some type of drug. So, I mean, you, you can tell when somebody's got a, a, a massive drug addiction. And I'm not talking about they recreationally play with drugs. I'm talking about hard drugs to the point where their fingers are charred, where they're smoking crack, or their veins are just littered with track marks up and down their arms. Um, I mean, it's, it's undeniable. You could train somebody in a matter of a couple of minutes to, to, to notice the certain signs that people make. Uh, and for instance, when that dad showed up to me, I mean, to give you an example, um, his bottom jaw was running from left to right, you know, he's gumming and, and really sped up and wide open. And that's something that uh, I've only seen when somebody's under the influence of some type of upper, um, but yeah, so no, I, I, as a police officer, I'm not giving a drug test because that's kind of, uh, that's kind of a, uh, or it's not kind of, it's definitely a violation of somebody's fourth amendment. Uh, mm -hmm. so they have the right to their privacy, uh, and to be secure in their person and places. Um, so with that being said, the fourth amendment, like, we, you know, police officer is not going to do a drug test when an individual is coming to pick up a child, but I didn't get a warm and fuzzy from that individual. So it's like, Hey, that child's going to be in defects custody. Uh, they're not removed. You're still the, the, the custodian of that child. Um, but, 
we've got to we've got to check some boxes before they go back home, right? Um, and in that situation, my my instincts were correct because mom uh, obviously was arrested with drugs on her. Um, the father could not pass a drug test to bring the child home uh, the next day, uh, and then grandma came and failed a drug test as well. And they were failing drug tests for something that only stays in your system for 48 hours. So it's like I arrested mom on Friday and had to remove the child. Um, had they cleaned up Saturday and Sunday, um, they most likely would have passed the drug test early next week. Um, so it's one of those things where it's like, now you're dealing with the totality of the circumstances. The child has been removed from the home and you are not like they are my priority to get them back home. Your priority was, I got to get high so I can think about this, right? So um, they, they, they didn't say, oh, my God, I made a huge mistake. Uh, I have to stop using drugs. There's no telling what the court's going to ask me to do next week. I have to get my child back. That's the first priority. Cause, I mean, if one of them had passed a drug test come early next week, uh, I can guarantee you that child would have went home with them. Um, and, they, you know, that wouldn't have been the end of it. Uh, but if they could prove, like, hey, give us a little something to show that like you're as concerned about this child's safety as the, the state is. Um, and in that situation where nobody um, that is tied to that child by blood can pass uh, a drug test for felonious drugs, hard drugs, um, that child's going to stay in the state's custody until they figure out a, a place where a child can go and be safe. Well, I ask everybody that comes on the podcast this, and I think that, um, not only do I value your opinion because you're my husband, but you're also a teacher now. You teach middle school and you teach civics and you have been a police officer. So you have an interesting point of view. So what do you think it would take in all of your experiences and all of your roles to end the foster care crisis with all of these kids that keep going into care? To end the foster care crisis, like that's a huge um undertaking right and i would i would attribute it to the the, the old saying of how to eat an elephant one bite at a time um but i would i would i would challenge people to stop thinking of problems in terms of uh they should do this they should do that uh and what can i do uh to try to help right so um people would be surprised uh, at, at, at things that they could do that can make a difference in their community um, something as simple as just looking after a child that you think might not have uh, the best situation. Uh, maybe just a conversation with the kid, right? So don't look at it uh, in terms of uh, I've got to solve the foster care crisis, uh, foster care crisis rather. Uh, maybe look at it like, hey, that kid across the street that didn't look like he got Christmas, uh, I'm going to get him a basketball, point of basketball hoop out. Maybe I'll shoot some basketball with him sometime. Maybe I'll talk to him. Maybe I'll mentor him uh so yeah like like instead of pushing and saying the government should fix this the fact should fix this the cops should fix this uh do what you can do to try to help somebody out uh whether it would be mentorship or something as simple as uh, uh fixing somebody up with a meal if they needed it um or or just just fellowship you know um so you're, you're not going to solve the foster care crisis overnight um but if you could pick one thing to look at and try to make it uh make it better uh if everybody did a little bit of that then we could definitely solve somebody's issues maybe not everybody's but um 
yeah, just, just breaking it down a little bit at a time. Yeah. And it's like, I, I, it reminds me of the kid when we were back in Hackworth that you, uh, you know, you had gotten several calls on and you could have probably easily either picked him up for something or maybe send him to, you know, given him charges even, I don't know, but you realize that this was a kid that should be in school and you got to know him a little bit and you brought him to get food and you got him into jujitsu. So can you tell us that story and like how it was just, I guess it was just your choice to rather than see this kid as a problem, you saw it as an opportunity to make a difference. Yeah, so that that uh, that kid, uh, and I'd have to give a little bit of backstory on the time. This was a, this was about the time that uh, the incident with uh, the unfortunate incident with Trayvon Martin had happened, uh, and that young uh, child had been uh, killed for a similar situation for walking through a neighborhood, right? And so uh, everybody in the United States of America was kind of polarized at the time. They either were on the side that well, you know, wanted to support Zimmerman. Uh, for being the neighborhood watch that was challenging anybody that looked suspicious. Uh, and then you had the side that was like, dude, you killed a, a kid for walking through your neighborhood. Um, so to give that backstory, I, I give that because um, that was the energy in the, the neighborhood at the time. Uh, I was a, a young black kid walking through a neighborhood uh, and somebody had actually yelled a racial slur out on him. He had not done anything wrong other than not being in school uh, and kind of walking around. Uh, shooting basketball. Uh, so um, that had happened. Um, and then another party actually called the police on him for being suspicious. So I showed up uh, and he explained to me that um, somebody had, had called him a racial slur and then somebody called the police on him. And it just kind of touched my heart. I felt bad for him um, because he was just being a kid, you know, uh, no different than I was whenever I was a kid, you know, walking through people's yards or um, riding a dirt bike or being silly, doing something I shouldn't have been doing, but at the end of the day, just being a kid, you know? Um, so it kind of pulled on my heartstrings to, to kind of look out for him and figure out why he wasn't in school and try to get him back on the right path. Um, because yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how long it would be before, um, I was, uh, mistreated in a neighborhood before I started to kind of polarize things of there are them. And then there's me. Um, mm -hmm. and if you can look at things in a situation where it's them and me, um, then when somebody's front door gets kicked in and their PlayStation gets stolen, um, it, it, you know, as a police officer, it starts to kind of make more sense, you know? Um, and I'm not saying that that's right. It's all, it's obviously wrong. Um, but when nobody's looking out for you and in fact, everybody wants you to go away and treat you like a leper of society, um, then some people turn to embrace that. Um, and he was at a point where he was still innocent. Um, uh, and I say innocent through like uh, his mannerisms and everything. He was still a child. He's still a kid. He was like 13. Um, but he, I, I had seen it several times before where um, you watch kids in neighborhoods um, that go from being that kid that's running around bouncing a basketball to um, kicking someone's front door in. And that's a process that you see unfold. It doesn't happen overnight, um, but it's just the totality of everything that's going on in their life uh no structure no one looking out uh for them or you know, not knowing where their next meal is coming from and then on top of that feeling like they're not welcome um mm. in certain places um and yeah i just wanted to help the kid out and let him know like hey man you're no different than i was when i was a kid um and that's where that situation kind of went we got him started in jujitsu. i was 
uh, grateful enough that one of the jiu-jitsu schools uh, offered him a scholarship to be able to train jiu-jitsu. Um, and he went for a little while and uh, went about his way. But I, I don't know if that made any difference whatsoever. Uh, I don't know if it just made me feel good. But at the time, um, it felt like the right thing to do. Uh, and that's a decent situation or, or, or an example of some of the things I think people could do to try to make a difference. Um, and I have no idea where that kid's at today. We've lost contact. But at the time, I felt uh, pulled to try to, to help him out the best way I could because I felt like he was being treated unfairly and I wanted to make sure he was on the right path. So, um, yeah, if, if people can just put themselves in, in, in people's situations before they uh, jump to judgment or hustle to say they should do this or they should do that or um, that person shouldn't be here, that person shouldn't be there. Think about it uh, if you were on the flip side of that coin. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm by no means the type of person that was passive when it was time to aggressively enforce uh, the law. Um, I also was the type of person that would, uh, without impunity, you know, lock somebody up for the rest of their life if that's what was needed. Um, but there are times where some compassion would do better than, uh, than you know, put a stick upside somebody's head and tell them, you know, do what I want you to do. Um, so uh, I would tell people to be compassionate if that's an option um, and help folks out. Um, because once uh, individuals become uh, predators, they very rarely come back. Mm, ah, such good, such good stuff, such a good message and good perspective. I think that a lot of times when people say they, they also lump everything together. They, they lump the, the judges with Department of Children and Families and cops. It's all like some big system that, and and like you said, it's different branches and they all have yeah, to work it's a together. Very, it's a very easy way to take a situation and make it simple for you and, and to blame somebody else other than yourself. Um, saying, saying they, and yeah, like you're saying with three different branches of some enforcement side with the police officer and then uh, the judiciary has got to interpret. I mean, there's a lot of things that need to line up and it's very easy to just say they should do this, they should do that. Uh, but you're dealing with complicated issues and uh, they are not, uh, very easy to solve. So, uh, yeah, saying they is not helpful. And that's how I'd answer that question that you just gave me is that stop saying they and, and, and ask yourself what you can do to try to make the world a better place. I love it. I absolutely love it. This is really helpful. I, I don't know if people often stop to really understand the perspective of all the different players, but I mean, even now, now I want to talk to a foster parent that gets that call at three in the morning that has to take a kid in at four in the morning and and be ready to have that kid at court at eight in the morning. I mean, yeah. that's well, when you find yeah when you find when you find that person, uh, please thank them for me from a police officer's perspective because I've never met that person. That's funny that you say that. Um, that person is uh, is dealing with third party, right? So I call defects. Defects contacted me. Uh, defects contacts that foster person. I. Never had any interaction with them whatsoever, but uh, make sure that person knows that a police officer uh, that probably missed dinner um, and dealt with uh, trying to get that kid in a safe space, um, that they, they, they may have been able to go home, take a shower and shave and eat breakfast as a result of uh, their duty, right? So um, and a salute to that person when you catch up to them. Yeah, I will. And uh, you know, this podcast is all about bringing in all of the different perspectives and not assuming that we know anything, but hearing from every person and their very, you know, 
complex systems that have to do with, you know, our rising foster care crisis. And, and I love your advice on telling people to step up and see what they can do and not assume that others should be doing things differently. But it really is just, we've learned it's kind of the small pieces, the, the mentorship, the playing basketball, the showing somebody you care, the sense of community that we keep hearing over and over again is what can make the difference, which is awesome news because that's attainable and we can all, all be a part of it. So thank you so much for, for doing this with me. And um, I'm excited to, to give this to my listeners. Absolutely, thank you. All right, bye. Bye-bye. I know that I learned a lot and I realized also that I was making a lot of assumptions and it's crazy to work in the actual field and still not know how things work and what people's lives are like. That was really helpful for me to understand the police officer's role in child welfare. And also I realized it so is dependent on the resources your town has. Um, you know, he talked about having good relationships with some of the social workers, but if you don't have those good relationships or there's weird politics going on in your county, those can all impact the outcome for a particular child. So, and we all know that like so many of these states are broken down county by county and you know, the judge over here or the police over there, or the social worker over here, everything kind of weighs so much on a particular child's case so once again we continue to learn everything is so individual and i really hope that you guys enjoyed that if it would be helpful for anyone please share it thank you so much to those who have left reviews if you could go to apple podcast and leave a review that would be super helpful always helping and also, if you are a foster parent, if you're a social worker, if you work with this population, I would, and you feel like you have something to share, I would love to have you on the podcast. During this time, I think it's been really difficult to schedule interviews with people. So I am looking to share all of your stories and all of your voices to kind of represent the foster care nation. So let me know. It's Rebecca at StableMoments.com and we can schedule an interview. All right, guys, it has been fun. I will talk to you next week. Stay safe out there.